Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. Today, we talk about the broader value of Corporate Treasury and how can it go from support function to strategic business partner. To walk us through that topic, we welcome Kurt Smith. Kurt is the Director of Marengo Capital and Vice President and Technical Director of ACTA, the Australian Corporate Treasury Association. Kurt has a diverse professional background, including banking as a head of derivative trading, fund management as an investment strategist, consultant with Marengo Capital, and of course, corporate treasurer. Marengo Capital is a corporate treasury advisory, which specializes in creating and managing value. Kurt's sweet spot is in strategic treasury and corporate finance, ensuring that capital is sourced, structured, and allocated in a value-creating way. And well, for the Australian Corporate Treasury Association, there is a whole section about it in the episode, so I won't spoil too much. In the episode of today, expect to learn what risk appetite and risk strategy truly means for corporate treasury, but also for the board of directors. How could treasury be much more strategic rather than focusing only on operational tasks? What metrics such as the return on invested capital, cash conversion cycle, and weighted average cost of capital are? How could treasurers influence those? And the role of admissions of the Australian Corporate Treasury Associations, and of course, much, much more. Again, a fantastic guest that is truly passionate about treasury. We really hope you will enjoy the episode as much as we do. When you think about how you discovered the podcast, Corporate Treasury 101, it was probably through word of mouth, social media, or a recommendation from your favorite podcast app. And this is our ask to you. The only way people can discover our podcast and learn more about Treasury is thanks to you. So if you could follow the show, give us a review, or share the episode if you like it, it would mean the world to us. Last but not least, if you would like to learn more about AI and how it can transform our industry, join our bi-weekly newsletter, AI Treasury Insights, follow the link in the description or head to corporate-treasury-101.com slash newsletter. With all that being said, please welcome Kurt Smith. So, Kurt, thanks so much for joining us on the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. Could you start off by explaining to us, from your experience and your point of view, what treasury departments tend to focus on primarily and what's their primary function? Yeah, I think they tend to focus on risk and, and financial risk management uh, in particular. And, and the thing about financial risk management is it, it's such a generic term that it can be interpreted very widely or very narrowly. And, and most treasurers that that I come across, I choose to interpret it narrowly because that's what they've always done or because they think that's what boards want them to do. And I think, however, that that boards have a have a more a more mature approach to risk. Um, they know that to exploit opportunities that they have to take risk. And so my approach is to be much more direct with a board. Uh, I like to let them know, what is possible and then ask them for the type of treasury operating model that they want. The main functions though that those treasury departments typically go through, you mentioned there, cash management, risk, 
and and what else would be like if you say like if you had to summarize into one sentence treasury departments do this this and this what would be those key parameters well cash and liquidity management uh funding and and refinancing financial risk management and and operational risk management i think that covers the day-to-day bau activities of, of a treasury function and and i think while these while these functions are, are common across treasury the, the approaches of treasurers are very different and and i'd sort of classify them as operational treasury and strategic treasury um, and i think most treasurers stop at operational treasury and while that's a, a necessary prerequisite for strategic treasury and that makes it important because you can't be strategically ambitious if you're making operational mistakes I think if you do stop at operational treasury, you're leaving so much value on, on the table. And, and, and it's because of that, that that I'm really very passionate about about value. And, and that's something that I've always tried to bring either as a consultant or as a treasurer in companies and get that through through my teams. And it, it's quite a... Once you do get that, it, you, it, it, it really brings along that sort of internal culture within the team people really start to to enjoy it and and to look at uh, ways that they can can actually add value they can see where they fit in companies so it's um i think there's a there's a lot of value being left on the table in in a lot of companies in the way treasuries actually or treasurers run their treasury businesses Super interesting. Definitely going to be relevant for what we're going to talk about today then in the rest of the episode but, but before we move into that so you mentioned also something interesting before as well. So how does the rest of the company typically look at the treasury department? Typically, we hear that, oh, treasury is a support function. And I guess that's like the perception is you're there to help enable the activities. Is that how other, like the remaining parts of the other functions of the company see treasury overall? I think so. Uh, and and I think, you know, there's some, and legitimately so in some cases, but I, I think for me, treasurers often say that they're a cost center, and that's because they don't see themselves as a profit center, right? And, and so the natural thing is, okay, let's let's go into a cost center. But if you do that, you're an overhead on the business. It's like you're a, a tax on the business that that you serve. And since you, you've got to you've got to recover overheads or lower your operating margin, and and so. And the same as tax, it's, it's, it's an additional cost that has to be recovered. And none of those things sound particularly positive to me. And so people tend to, to get in this mindset, I'm a cost center, so I've got to reduce cost. I've got to, I've got to save as much as I can. Whereas I think there's another option, and, and that other option is to be a, a center of strategic value add. And this is where you challenge your treasury team to, to operate like a business. And for that, you need to add value. And at a minimum, the value you have to add has to cover the cost of your seat. So that's going to be your salary, the on costs, or the gear you're using. You, you need to be able to show that you're adding at least that much value for an owner to think it's legitimate to have you there in the first place. And, and as I've said, once you, once you do that and you start challenging people, I think at first it can be almost a little bit threatening. People think, oh, God, how am I going to do that? But once you sort of bring them along for the ride, they realize it's just applying a commercial mindset. It's looking at this as if 
I'm an owner of the business. How, how am I going to support running this business? And that's, that's where we almost do that full circle. Right? You, you are supporting the business, but you're coming at it from a different, a different mindset, a different perspective. Kurt, all makes a lot of sense. And actually, we, we'd like to dive into this a little bit later on to really see how Treasury can bring value and how they can change from being a cost center to a profit center somehow. But maybe to, to begin with and, and remain in the high level, understand the overall big picture, can you remind us of what the risk appetite is, please? So risk appetite for me is defined by the board and they decide the risks that they want to take they rate those risks and they decide the risks that they don't have any, any appetite to take a, a, as well. And that's typically done at an enterprise-wide level. And then that then cascades down into different business units. Um, and I think, I think treasuries have an opportunity to influence risk appetite by mounting a strategic case to the board. And often where that opportunity lies is in the area that treasury explores the least which is the allocation of capital so every treasurer sources capital some treasurers then look at structuring capital very few look at capital allocation and i think that's a space for treasurers to actually get involved and have the opportunity to influence risk and one thing that we sort of touched on before when we were looking at you know what's the perception of treasury in the broader business if you are at that cost center end of the spectrum often you also come very late in the value chain and that's when people come to you and say all right we've decided we're doing this can you now raise 200 million or 400 million in the market and it's it's much better from a treasury perspective to be involved at the beginning of the value chain because that's when you can have influence on the decisions that are made. And often, well, not often, but it's happened a few times where people come to me and say, okay, we, we've decided everything. We want you to raise, you know, um, 500 million in the market. And then I'm sort of saying, well, hang on, this is crazy. It doesn't stack up. We can't raise at these levels. Those levels are history. Uh, the market's in a different space now. Um, and, and so it really is about, I think there is the opportunity to play at the beginning of the value chain and have influence, and that's infinitely more interesting. So the risk appetite will be a uh, variable, actually. It fluctuates throughout types depending on the market conditions and with a treasurer that advises the board on what approach to take when it comes to risk appetite. Is that a bit the spirit, or how would you, how would you say risk appetite is actually decided on? Yeah, so I, I think the thing about risk in general uh, with with treasuries, so I think there's a misconception that, that the role is to minimise risk. And some people, I think, even look at, on a transactional basis, they're looking to eliminate risk. And, and companies don't operate in that space. Companies, they're actually looking to take risk. They just want to take the risk that, that they're targeting and no more. So, uh, and, and what they're looking to get is, is a return on the invested capital that they deploy and to have that capital that's allocated, to have it allocated in an efficient manner, which means to you allocate it at a return that you know you're then going to grow your capital base. And that makes everything sustainable, right? Um, 
Now, that for me is is the risk game. And to look at it that way, you, you need to be looking at it more from the perspective of an owner and from the board and the C-suite. And, and that is the key difference between, I think anyway, between being operationally focused, so operational treasury and being strategic treasury. And strategic treasury as a term has been around for decades. But I still talk with people at, at conferences and um, networking and everything else, and people don't actually know what it means. And for me, that's what it means. It means getting out of the weeds, looking enterprise-wide, looking over a longer time horizon and thinking, how am I going to add value in this business? What's, what's my role in the value chain to help add value in this business? And if I can't do that, then I can't explain it to my team. And then my team ends up doing day-to-day jobs where they don't understand their role in the company. It's just, yeah, I turn up, I do this activity, but I don't know how it contributes actually to the company. Whereas if you can if you can turn your mind to looking at assisting to build value, you then make the company economically sustainable. You're able to grow the capital base to help you do more of the stuff that C-suite and board want to do. The other thing is if you don't, you deplete your capital base and you end up being able to do less and less and less. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, Guillaume. I hope it did. Um, I, 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 could have gone, I could have gone down a rabbit hole a little bit, but I think that, that for me, it's, it's taking that enterprise-wide perspective, that broader, that broader perspective. Yeah. So, Kurtz, let me reassure you, it absolutely does, and it actually answers my next question as well, which was, do you see, so speaking of this operational versus strategic treasury, do you sometimes see gaps between a company's risk appetite and what treasury departments actually solve for in terms of risk? guess the answer to this question is yes, definitely. And actually, probably most of the time still. Yeah, absolutely. See, see it all the time. I think it's because of a more bottom-up approach that's taken. And that's understandable to some sense. As I said, you've got to have a very strong um, operational treasury foundation in order to be strategically ambitious. So you have to do those things well. You, you, you can't be wanting to go to the board and, and present and then you know as you're as you're getting ready to do that you're having to report compliance breaches they're not going to trust you on something strategic that that might be multi multi-year and and you know multi-billion and then um, discover that you're, you're dropping the ball on on simple things so i do see it all the time and i think it's because people People tend to fall into treasury. You know, you, you, often it's not a career path that you you identify at university. It's something that you discover and that you come into, but then you find you love it and you don't leave. And, and you tend to go up the ranks. So you start with the detail and the technical proficiency. But the further you get up, the technical proficiency is, is understood. It's, it's something that you just have to have. What becomes really important is your ability to communicate those difficult technical concepts in a, in a simple way. 
one for the operational side of the business to be able to explain why why it's important um, that they interact with you and interact early, and then the other is in relation to uh, to C suite and 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 board. Uh, you, you need to be able to explain things in a way which which makes it simpler for them. So, how would you actually, in terms of KPIs, to to put a little bit of metrics and and concrete uh, numbers or data, at least we can wrap our head around it. How would you rank enterprise value and enterprise risk in terms of KPIs? And I think linked to this is is finally financial risk one of the biggest enterprise risk in the end. And if so, why? Yeah. Okay. So. Look, I, I think one thing that I've been told in the past is that um, nothing gets done unless it's a KPI. So it has the ability of focusing people's mind. And for me, the enterprise value and enterprise risk are KPIs for the board and for C-suites. So if you're able to demonstrate how Treasury can help build enterprise value and, and, and reduce enterprise risk, then you're helping the board and the C-suite meet their KPIs. And so that is a very compelling case why you then get that seat at the table. And people always talk about, oh, I want, want a seat at the table. I want to be, I want to have that influence. Well, if you can show a C-suite board how you will help them meet their KPIs, they have a, a much greater interest in in actually listening to you. And financial risk, is financial risk one of the biggest enterprise risks? Then um, I would say yes. Um, certainly for the companies that I've worked for, the answer is yes. And and the, the companies that I've consulted to, it's been yes as well. And that's because, you know, we deal in, in financial markets. Financial markets uh, are volatile. They, they move around a lot and in ways that um, can often be surprising. We deal in large volumes. Um, so, you know, we, we don't bat an eyelid at, at, you know, raising 500 million or a yard or two yards. And, you know, that's, that's, that's something that, that we're accustomed to. Um, but if you think about that with, with interest rate movements or with currency movements, the, the change in value can be substantial. Um, it can turn something from being economic to being uneconomic. So I think we're we're in a as as a treasury team or as a treasurer, you're in a really good and interesting position with 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 company. And that was really one of the main reasons why I I made the change from from financial market roles. You know, I was I started off as a fund manager trading bonds and currency, and then I, I went into into a bank to head up a derivative trading unit and. Those jobs were interesting, but it was all just you know, money, money, money. And that was the be all and end all. Um, and that's fine. You were helping companies by taking risks they, they didn't want to take. But there's nothing like a longer term corporate survival and, and companies that are wanting to do things that are, that are helping consumers or helping the broader economy. There's nothing like actually being part of being part of that, helping helping a company to succeed. Kurt, I'd like to come back on something you said earlier in the introduction, um, how to take treasury from a cost center, which is in most cases true, and transform it into a profit center. Well, that starts by actually making up for the cost that you incur. How do you do that? How do you make that happen? So I think, first off, people 
need to understand how value is created. So value is created by increasing cash um, and by reducing the cost of capital. And and both of those things is, is right where Treasury plays. We follow cash through the whole business um, and we do that in order to to forecast cash and to make sure that liquidity is available to, to pay bills, make sure funding's available for, for capital expenditure programs. But we we follow this this arterial flow of cash through the business. And it and it's as a result of that, what what I suggest and, and the way I look at it is here's this spectrum of activity that's you know under a cash heading. You can do just you can just forecast it in order to ensure that there's liquidity available. The other thing that you can do is you can actually turn your mind to how do I increase it? Because if you're increasing it, you're then adding value. And there, there's there's a lot of simple things that can be done, and really simple things. Uh, one thing that I did, I, I was talking to our CFO, and I was saying there's a lot of money that's wasted in the business and he challenged me and said well, I don't no, I don't think so I think we're we're lean lean um, I don't think that's the case and and we sort of we parted agreeing to disagree so I, I put a meeting in his calendar um, for half an hour about two weeks after that and then I just went down and said come with me and we just walked around the business and I said and we had 10 floors and and on the 10 floors of the business there were two printing pods in on each floor and they were stacked floor to ceiling with reams of paper. And I just said, well, you know, there's your working capital sitting right there doing nothing. Um, we went to other floors that were not fully populated. And this is before this is before COVID, where there's a greater expectation now that they're not going to be fully populated. But, you know, I said, look, you've got rent going out the door on these floors, but why? We're not using them. And and just little things like that. Uh, and and, and Really, it's about everybody in the business. So not just Treasury, but everybody in the business knowing what value drivers are. And and people have heard cash is king all the time. But what it means is that an operational person that might be out, um, you know, um, drilling holes in the ground looking for gold needs to understand that everything that they do is about, well, not everyone, a lot of what they do is about increasing cash in the business. And it's either finding the product in the ground, but it's also, um, you know, what vehicles are you looking to purchase to to support that? How are you, how are you looking to go about it? Or how are you going to do your, your, your maintenance in an efficient way to, to, to save money? Because those things, that's what's going to generate um, value. And generating value is what makes the company economically sustainable and it's funny as, as financial people we understand what what value means operational people don't always um, i can remember talking to one that and i was talking about value just assuming that they knew what it meant and and they sort of they're an engineer um and they sort of said to me oh you just want to sell the company no i, I don't what i want to do is all the things you want to build, I want to be able to fund. And and I can only fund that if the capital base is growing. And for that, that means that the capital we deploy 
we need to recover it through a return. And and if if we're doing that, then we can do more. If we can't do that, we'll do less over time. So it's things that you you take for granted that um, yeah, it, it can be perceived by by other people. And I think over time, I started off talking mainly with CFOs. And then I've realized as, as time has gone on, especially as a consultant, but as a treasurer of Formalin, I, I spend a, a lot of time talking to COOs, actually understanding the business, understanding what it does, how it does it, where the pain points are. And a lot of this is, it, it has to be done before you want anything from somebody. If we're talking, you know, we were talking about KPIs. One of the KPIs I had on of my team members was you've got to meet with people uh, in the business. So you need to phone people up or email them, ask them for a coffee, whatever it is, in order to sit down and understand the business really Super interesting, Kurt. I mean, it's something that, I mean, speaking to a lot of treasurers, it's a lot, something we definitely think touch on little less. It is indeed a lot more operational. Um, and risk management as opposed to value creation, which is just interesting shift of mindset. You, you mentioned their um, return on invested capital, right? That's a that's a KPI that gets thrown around quite a lot. Could you just help us like define that maybe mathematically, like what is the equation for return on invested capital, and how can treasury departments specifically optimize that? Like, what's the practical examples or steps to optimize your return on invested capital that you could suggest? Return on invested capital, it does have some minor differences in terms of how things are defined, depending on, on whether companies in, in multiple tax jurisdictions, whether they're active in M&A and things like that. But if we look at it more simply, it's effectively net operating profit after tax divided by invested capital. So what that is, is uh, earnings before interest and then applying a notional tax to that, not actual tax, but notional tax, and then divided by the sum of operating working capital and net property planning. So in the end, what does that mean? It, it's, it's, it's operating returns that are unaffected by, by leverage and, and tax structures. And, and I, I sort of mentioned before that I think we could say that pretty much every treasury sources capital, whether it's from, from Internally, whether it's um, bank capital, whether it's uh, debt capital markets, some structure capital, so influence, you know, how much is into debt, how much is into equity, but very few allocate capital. And so thinking about return on invested capital doesn't cover, come across a lot of treasury teams' minds. It's not, it's certainly not front of mind. And that's, that's what's key for capital allocation. And as I've said, you, you've got to increase, you, you've basically got to have a return on invested capital that exceeds the weighted average cost of capital for value to grow. And if you're taking, you should have a return that's commensurate with the risk that you're taking to be allocatively efficient, right? So, so both of those things go hand in hand. How do you apply that? Well, it, it can actually get pretty difficult because on the return on invested capital front, most of that's about optimizing your, your operating working capital. So they're your internal funding sources, and it's about increasing cash. 
that's what covers your your return on invested capital. If we're looking at your cost of capital, then that's that's all those things that you that you need to do. Um, like if you've got a credit rating agency, you, then uh, where you're being rated, you, you want to be looking at reducing your earnings volatility so that you can potentially get a step change in your rating by, by improving your earnings volatility. Um, you need to be very mindful of your banking covenants and, and your, your credit rating down triggers. What's the most binding constraints there? And, and be looking to, to manage to, to those outcomes so that you, you don't have a, a step change going the other way. Right, a, a downgrade event, or or a um, going from a stable to to a, a watch um, environment, and then when you're looking at earnings volatility, that's your financial risk management coming in. So it, so it's going from a transactional risk management. I'm raising five hundred million in USPP markets, so I'm going to do this hedge. To hedge away the the US dollar exposure, I'm going to do this hedge to to hedge away the interest rate exposure. It's going from that environment to panning back more and saying, well, okay, what's what's really important is that we manage to our credit rating in, in order to ensure that we we we're going to be managing our interest exposure there first, then looking at how much do we want to have. Uh, between fixed and floating and everything else, so I think it's that it's that ad- additional step is is what turns it from being a, a more operational or transactional focus into more of a strategic focus. Kurt Woods, would a treasurer that is, say, identifying a region that is borrowing cash, a few hundred millions, for instance, whilst seeing an other region that is actually cash rich? And not really doing much with that money and putting a centralization in place be a good example of how treasury can actually influence that metric the return on invested capital because by repaying internal debt and identifying those opportunities that that's actually putting the finger on the roic right or is my understanding not correct here no it's spot on absolutely so it comes down to a lot of those in- intercompany funding the regimes and um, yeah, it's it's a it's a clear opportunity. I'm working with an entity at the moment that has a lot of sub entities, uh, and they said um, they basically didn't have a good feel for how much cash they they had on hand and what they should do about it. And the cash that they've got is 2.2 billion, um, which you know that's a substantial amount of money. Uh, to not be fully aware of how much they've got. And so the, the traditional treatment by Treasury is a very good one. And, and that is to say, well, okay, can we centralise the management of this in somebody who has the skills to do it, where you can actually shift money between jurisdictions, between entities, so that you're always netting, you're always internally funding whatever you can so that you only go externally from one source. And then what that allows you to do is reduce the frequency with which you have to go externally in, in the first instance, but then it also allows you to go 
in a wholesale way with a lot more clout rather than finding somebody that's an entity that's short of cash is is borrowing frequently at high rates an entity that's surplus in cash is investing at, at lower rates you, you're on both sides of the market and getting hurt both times so yeah now you're you're actually spot on could you take us deeper into the cash flow side of what you said earlier so you said that treasurers can be more strategic and optimize their return on invested capital by one leaner of that one lever of that is maximizing cash right which is typically like one of the traditional, let's say, operational roles that we would expect out of the Treasury Department, um, as you broke it down earlier. How do you look at cash management and cash flow forecasting um, in more of a strategic treasurer manner? And how, how can a strategic treasurer bring to the table ways to optimize that? Yeah, so I think, uh, I, I guess for me, firstly, it's about increasing cash flowing so that that's that, that's the first thing so rather than just forecasting it actually increasing it but but it's probably to go into even broadening up the, the spectrum somewhat um by by looking across working capital so your operating uh working capital uh, includes your your cash balances and and so one is your, your cash balance what's actually sitting there you want to you want to be effectively uh, optimizing your, your operating working capital and that comes through the the cash conversion cycle and and that's where you've got essentially your day's sales outstanding um, your day's inventory outstanding minus your day's payable outstanding and so you, you want to be optimizing that because that's a relatively cheap form of internal funding now in in more recent times after after covid it became less of a mathematical issue and and did bring in some need uh for for nuance so uh pre-covid we'd be just saying okay we'll drag your payables out as long as possible without really annoying people and and that was really that equation um, for for optimizing cash conversion cycle since covid you also have to be strategic enough to think, okay, we, we've got to support our supply chain and there's, uh, it may be that there's this particularly um, a key supplier that we just need to pay promptly, um, even pay early in order to guarantee uh, our, our, our supplies. So it's become a little bit more nuanced then. But I think there's, with cash, you've, you've sort of got two things. You've got the balance and, and, and the balance is always a tension between you don't want to be having a lazy balance sheet, so you don't want to have too much cash on hand, but you do want to be able to also show the market that you've got access to liquidity. So you, you, want, to, you want to balance off that sort of internal tension. And then there's the cash flows. And the cash flows are about, for me anyway, it's about going beyond forecasting them and then stepping into how to increase them. And, and increasing them, you know, I gave simple examples of sort of walking the CFO around the business and pointing to, to, to things that you can do. But I, I think a lot of it comes down to speaking with the operational side of the business and really understanding what they do and how they do it and where their pain points are. And sometimes uh, what you can do 
can, can really add a lot of value. I, I worked with a regulated utility. As a regulated utility, they had um, a, a, a revenue base that was set by the regulator. There was a particular nuance to that um, where the, the cash flows were, were very sawtoothed in, in the way that they, they came through. That was causing a bit of a problem with the business. And so we worked the, uh, with the economic regulator, the policy arm, to look at modifying how the cash was, was calculated in order to make it smoother. And they were quite happy to do that because it meant that the tariffs were smoother for consumers as well. But what it did for us and the reason why we really wanted to do it is it brought forward a billion dollars worth of cash. Um, now, it didn't increase cash per se in terms of the nominal amount, but it brought it forward. So in discounted terms, it increased the discounted cash. And so that's increasing value. So it's, it's things like that. It's, it's thinking with a commercial hat on all the time. What can we do? Nobody had ever really negotiated with the regulator because everybody assumes that the regulator wouldn't do it. But there are opportunities. You've sometimes just got to think a little bit outside the box and then you've got to continue to pursue it when people say it can't be done. Everybody tells you it can't be done. For some reason, it can't be done. And it may be the case. You may sort of, you know, after five, six, seven meetings, say, yeah, okay, it can't be done. But often people would just say it can't be done because they don't want to do it or because it, it involves a, a bit of work to pursue. But if there's an opportunity, like, like a billion dollars, that's an easy one. That, that's a lot of money, so you've got to pursue that, right? But even when I've spoken to people about other things, optimizing cash, so not having not having too much cash on hand, paying down, paying down debt, managing your liquidity tightly. And and I had somebody with a client turn around and say, well, that, that's only a hundred grand. It'll only save a hundred grand. You know, if we keep it, it's not going to, it, it'll make it administratively easier is how it was described to me. And I said, we can never have administrative ease drive economic outcomes. And if we can't optimize cash, and what that says to me, uh, we've got a real problem as Treasury because that's a core part of our business. And if we're not going to do that, we can look at, at contracting out the Treasury function because we just, that's, that's not good enough. And if it, it, it's quite simple, it comes down to it, I think, if, if you wouldn't do it with your own money, then you shouldn't do it with somebody else's. A uh, hundred grand means enough to me personally that I wouldn't expect the company to just absorb a hundred grand when it's a pretty simple thing to just look and say, well, okay, we'll, we'll pay down this debt on Wednesday and we'll re-borrow again on Friday. It's not a difficult thing to do, um, but all of those things add up into creating substantial value. I like that. So I like that you, a few things, what you said there, Kurt. So you give a couple of practical tips, right? So you said, Hey, look, go and speak to operations. That's that's, or look at the operations of the company itself, and and go through their pain points and how they believe where they believe opportunities lie, because they're the ones in it day in day out. So that that's super interesting. Uh, and the other one you said, uh, which is kind of interesting, is indeed don't don't be afraid to challenge things, even like regulations, which indeed I think a lot of people would 
would say, hey, look, that's just the regulatory framework. It's a cost we have to bear. And um, if you don't ask, you don't get, right? So no harm in asking. And it looks like, and I think the regulators typically like feedback. Is that your experience, generally speaking, on these kind of things? Yeah, I, I think my experience with regulators has, has basically been in regulated utility space where you've got transmission and distribution businesses um, and there isn't a competitive market necessarily uh, for some of those activities, So, especially on the transmission side. And so a regulator has to set what they see as a competitive tariff. Well, what's a in lieu of a market tariff, what do they think is, is an efficient market tariff? So, so my experience is that um, regulatory economists haven't had experience at actually running businesses and they don't have experience at uh, transacting financial markets. And so there's a real opportunity to have a constructive um, conversation with these. I think they're they certainly the regulated utility space. There's been a lot of argy bargy in Australia over that over that space, and 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 over the years, not so much now, but certainly over the years, it's it's been it, it, it's got pretty aggressive. But I think you can have a constructive discussion, provided you you bring evidence to the table, right? If it's evidence based and saying, well, you know, what you're proposing is that, that we can go into the market and transact this way in this size. Well, the answer is yes, we can, but it's going to push the market so substantially that um, we're not going to get price outcomes that, that you're looking at a Bloomberg screen at, at Benning. If we were not a regulated entity, would we do this at all? And, and the answer is no. So if the regulator wasn't here, you wouldn't do it. Why would we do it just because the regulator is here? It doesn't make sense. And so sometimes you can have discussions with them um, and they can be, um, my experience has been pretty good actually. And I've, I've dealt with regulators for, for utilities in, in two different jurisdictions uh, on opposite sides of the country and, and they've been positive both times uh, because they've been receptive to to hearing what's what is it actually like at the coalface if all you do is go there and complain they're going to be as receptive as anybody else to listening to somebody who, who just complains but if you go and say well look we've got a we've got a problem here that we don't think we can execute this in the market because of these reasons and we think you should look at it this way um generally they've been quite constructive and and open to, to doing it i mean in the end they want to they want good outcomes too. The difference, I guess, is that they might come more from a consumer perspective. What is the consumer paying? And I've worked for businesses where it's been, what's the return that we can generate? And so there is a there's a bit of a tension there. But um, but I, I found it, it it has been constructive, and it's again it points to treasurers getting. Um, involved at the, the beginning of the value chain and, and not at the end. And so if, you, if you're there at the beginning and you're working with a regulatory team or you're what, whatever else it may be, if you're there involved at the beginning, you have the opportunity to influence the outcome that comes. Like any other part of the business, you can succeed or fail 
Um, and I certainly haven't got everything that I've wanted, but there's no point sort of wondering, right? You might as well ask the question. If it's no, it's no. Um, then you can move. No, that's that's the goal then. So it becomes such a strategic treasure, you influence regulation. That's that's a good bar to set. That's a, that's a nice way to look at it. So, Kurt, you touched on uh, cash conversion cycles and you ran us through what that uh, what that is and why treasury departments need to focus on it. How does the cash conversion cycle relate to working capital management and how can you use that to to be optimized? Maybe you could relate also to how treasurers can influence profit and invested capital to achieve that. Yeah, so for me, working cap working capital is is incredibly important for for businesses. And where that really came home for me was in rapidly growing companies. Uh, rapidly growing companies, especially, have very very tight uh, working capital. The, the the good thing about working capital is that it is it's effectively an internally generated form of capital right so you're you're essentially trying to use your payables to fund your receivables and you've just got to be careful that you don't push that so far that you you end up with with problems with with suppliers so so i think it's 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 about being clever there it's about recognizing that it's important you know we've spoken a lot about you know me in a way trying to to push people a bit more um, to, to be more ambitious, to be more strategic. This is one area where I would say treasurers should be very understanding of, of, their, of their working capital, to, to know what their cash burn rates are, to, to understand um, what is behind their, their working capital. And if you get to that sort of point, you, you'll find out, um, you know, there, there's... Uh, you know, one one or two, you might have one or two large customers that just don't pay on top. And, and so uh, you, you can pick up the phone and actually talk to the treasurer in, in those organisations and, and just sort of say, well, you know, we're all trying to do the same sort of thing here. Happy to try and work with you as much as we can, but we can't have, we can't have you missing your payments, which is a very superficial sort of way of looking at it. That's giving you your cash conversion cycle in, in numbers. But it's not telling you anything that's behind it. You can then go down through and sort of work with teams, and you know it won't necessarily be the treasurer, but it's a good team. It's a good exercise for your team to sort of say, "Well, okay, I want you to go through and talk to people about the customer to cash cycle, influencing that. You know, are we getting invoices out on time? So when we do the work, do we send the invoice out quickly, shortly thereafter, or is there a lag?" Um, often there's a lag. Um, well, that's just costing you from not getting money out of the door. Let's talk to people about preparing invoices as as they go, so that um, by the time they've they've actually wrapped up the, either the end of the month or the job or whatever it is, they've got a couple of hours work and they're ready to send it out. And the day counts start from from that point. You can talk to the to the purchase to pay process. The forecast to fulfill process, you know, your logistics and your, your product life cycles and actually go and talk to teams and say, well, look, if we can, if we can optimize these things, the company benefits. How easy or how hard or how difficult it is it 
to improve these things by a day, by two days, by three days, by a week. How can we get this this actually going? And it, it can be, it can start off initially by, I'm really interested in what you do and I don't know much about it. Can you can you tell me about it? You know, over a coffee or something like that. And then as you start speaking, people start. To, most people are a bit, are pretty passionate about what they do, so they'll give you a lot more detail than you really intended to receive. And then some of that you might be going, oh, well, actually, if we do it this way, we get to keep money in the company for an extra few days. That's that's a good thing. Right? We need then we borrow less, and we incur less cost. And and it, it becomes this virtuous circle of of benefit. And and if you if you can do it, then you do call outs. You know you, you have you know the internal systems that that sort of say, well, you know, um, Joe Blow is doing a great job in 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 sales or whatever it might be. And and so you, um, one of the things that we used to, we used to have to do that every month. And so what I would do is get the team together with the you know with a week to go and say, look, is there anybody here who's had good interaction with us that we can actually say, look, these people are helping us do do our work. Um, they're helping to keep money in the business for longer reduce our interest costs, whatever it might be, and we'd call it out in the business and let people know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's 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 about things like that. It's, don't just skim along the surface of the business. You need to it, it I think as you go further up the chain, you, you are more strategic by nature. That's that's the expectation. But you still need to make sure that your your teams actually get out of their get away from their desk and go through the business and actually speak to people. And, and one of the things that that, um, that I do is, you know, tell people, uh, you know, if it's on the corporate finance side of the business that I ran, you know, get your safety gear, your PPE, and go out and, you know, kick the tires on this kit. Have you actually seen what's being bought? You know, there might be a $500 million program to buy a bunch of stuff. Have you actually gone down and looked at one? And where they're going to store it before they install it? Is it safe and is it you know secure? So it's things like that. It's just you know get making sure your teams. If if you can't do it as a treasurer, it's making sure that your teams actually do get through into the weeds. But the the overall the overall theme that binds it all is value add. Saying. We want you to understand this and understand how the business functions and operates because all of these little value additions, uh, expense-saving things are, are all going to add up into a lot of value by, by you. Wrap-up question for everything we've talked about. came to mind. Um, we've talked through a lot of KPIs, right? We talked about cash conversion cycle optimization. We talked about risk appetite, improving your risk appetite, ROIC, return on invested capital, etc. We haven't even touched WAC, like weighted average cost of capital or anything like this. When you come into a company, right, or as a consultant, you come into something and say, hey, uh, we need to find a way to make this treasure. We need to find opportunities to think more strategically about this as a treasurer in this company. Is there one KPI specifically that's your favorite one? Maybe it's number of days not spent at desk and actually on the floor uh, or something like this. Is there a specific KPI that you come in and say, okay, this is gonna this is typically the best opportunity for a treasury department to have very high leveraged 
impact on the business as a business leader? Yeah, look, uh, and you mentioned it, right? The way to average cost of capital. The reason for that, I think, is so we spent a lot of time on the re- return on invested capital side. Um, the, the ROIC has to be above the WAC to add value. So that's where it's all connected. That's where it, that's where it goes back to board level, C-suite level. So it's all connected. Everybody understands. It's relatively simple. Okay, this is, this is where I fit in the company and what I'm, what I'm doing helps the company. So that brings everybody together under a, a common drive or a common thing. When you look at the cost of capital, Treasury should own that as, as far as I'm concerned. We, we're the interface with financial markets. We're the only ones who can actually value that in real time. Uh, we can see where our debt trades. We don't have debt out there in, in that way. You, you can see the yield curve, you know, where the government curve is, you know, where the swap curve is. So you, you can you can see where the markets are trading. You can see where investment-grade credit's trading. And so that gives you an idea on and comparables as well, you know, comparable companies in the industry. So, so only treasurers have that. And so sometimes there's this, you know, is it a corporate finance activity or is it a, a corporate treasury activity? Uh, I, I solved that because I had both things reporting to me, so that was simple. When when you don't have that, I say treasurers should own it. Um, treasurers should understand at all times where the cost of capital actually is. And that's if you're, if you look at it as a company perspective, where it gets really interesting for me is when you start drilling down into business units, because if you're drilling down into business units, the cost of capital that they have will be different. They each have different risk. They each different um, contribute to the P&L in a different way. You know, some businesses will be much riskier than other businesses. And so you can't apply the same sort of cost of capital to it. So whether you whether you have a different cost of capital or the same cost of capital with hurdle rates that are different, it doesn't really matter. It's the same thing. But that is where you can really, it's a real game changer for the business. It's very hard though. So where it's a, where it's a game changer for the business is now you can set up, if you have differentiated costs of capital for business units, you can now set up a situation where you've got a competitive internal market for capital. So when business units are coming and asking for capital so that they can invest in the projects that they want to invest in, the the question that's being asked is, well, what return are you going to generate? So there's your return on invested capital. What return are you going to generate from it? But the other is, what's the cost of capital for that business unit? And so... It can be a bit confronting at times as a treasurer to say, well, you know, business unit A, your cost of capital is going to be 8%. Business unit B, your cost of capital is 5%. And people would get you know, quite anxious about the difference and why is it different. And then that's where you can sort of come back and say, well, you know, your contribution to the P&L is much more volatile than their contribution to the P&L. Well, you're operating in an industry that's much riskier than um, than they are, and therefore the expectation is your return should be higher um, uh, in order to be allocatively efficient. and And so there can be a little bit of negotiation that has to occur to put it in place. But once you do, um, 
it becomes a really um, interesting process because this can internally competitive market for capital means that people that they're trying to bring the very best that they can they might bring 10 projects but they know they're only going to get three over the line because other people are bringing stuff that's attracting more capital than them and then so that that whilst you might have a little bit more negotiation to do at the beginning you have less to do at the end people understand okay well you know i i understand why um why i'm not getting everything i've asked for is because somebody else has brought something that's better but but i think for me that's interesting it's also very rewarding but it is actually quite difficult it can be difficult doing that and that there are other there are other things that layer in nowadays as well you know carbon pricing if, you, if you're going to be introducing um carbon pricing into it you know if people have, have got green bonds or, or sustainability focus and and you've got some some projects which are greener and friendlier um, and other projects that are browner and, and not so good and so um, you know how do you do that do you do it with do you do it with a penalty or do you do it with a reward things like that so I think there's still um, there's still quite a bit of art in the science of doing this um, but it is something that I think treasurers should really own, and by owning it, it means that they automatically become directly involved in the allocation of of capital, and and that way they're they're really uh, again a big part of, of of that value chain. Kurt, I think that was an absolute masterpiece in terms of how treasurers can be actually more strategic, and I love the. The view you bring on not only, well, doing the day-to-day operational job, which is important at the basis, as you mentioned, just to build trust in your stakeholders, different business partners, but then go the next step. And the whole thing you've explained about cash, cash flow forecasting, how can we maximize it with actual KPIs? There is another particularity with you is that you are our first guest from Australia. And we're actually super interested into understanding what are the specificities of, of the region. Can you tell us a little bit more maybe um, about Australia? What's the, the maturity of treasury department there? Maybe compare it to Europe or the US. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, I can. No, I, I think we've got a, a mixed bag in Australia. So part of the slang would, would say it's a dog's breakfast. Um, we, we've got very large and, and sophisticated treasuries with, with, with very experienced and qualified professionals. We also have at the other end of the spectrum, we've got treasury services that are performed in smaller companies by accountants in finance department and everything in between. Again, what I think I said it earlier is that we find that people, once they join treasury, they don't tend to leave it. And so we do get uh, this higher echelon um, in Australia anyway of, of very qualified and experienced professionals operating at senior levels. Um, but the opportunities for younger professionals can take time to to emerge because of that, because um, you, you're waiting for the person at the top to move on in order to open up the opportunities um, as everybody sort of moves up one additional rung. And if there's one thing that I've found, I don't know if it's just Australia or, or if it's um, more generally, but certainly in Australia... Um, I think the younger generation is is less patient. 
um, they're, they're quite keen to to go up the tree quickly, um, and and so uh, it can be a bit frustrating if there aren't the opportunities being that being released. But the labour market for treasury professionals in Australia at the moment is extremely tight. It's it's a niche um, profession, and it's extremely tight. Uh, one of my clients at the moment, in trying to build out a treasury team for them, it's taken longer than than was hoped for, simply because uh, the the market is so tight. And if you want to get the uh, top ten percent, then you have to pay in in order to draw those people across. So it's um so yeah, that, that's 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 very um, very tight at the moment. Generally about Australia, um, for those who, who don't know, it's an open economy with very good financial markets, banks and professional services. So, so we're very lucky there. Got a good rule of law. The Australian dollar is, is very liquid. It's one of the, the most one of the more liquid currencies in the world. And part of the reason for that is uh, of our commodity exposure and our exposure to China and Japan. So fund managers, I used to be a fund manager back in the day, fund managers that want to get access to growth quickly will often buy Australian dollars unhedged um, because they just know that buys into world growth cycle, China doing well and non, non-Japan Asia doing well as well. And then that just comes from our, our commodity exports um, so the other thing I'd say, sort of characteristically, we tend to buck convention a little bit. So we're, we're, we're geographically isolated down here. And as a result of that, I think we tend to embrace independence a little bit. We won't always sort of follow what, what's done elsewhere. That, that might just mean that we're, maybe we just don't like being told what to do. I, I don't know. But um, we, we do tend to probably just think of things from our own perspectives a little bit before necessarily testing what what's out there uh what's out there already no that's that makes a lot of sense i like how the the geography and location have a has an uh, has an impact on this that's super interesting kurt i also believe you're the you're the vice president of the of the acta right the australian corporate treasury association can you tell us a bit more about this? Like, what's your role there? Uh, what is ACTA doing overall? What's what's the overall dynamic of the Corporate Treasury Association in Australia? Look, we've got a uh, we've got a really good association. We I think we're quite fortunate in that treasury teams uh, and treasurers tend to be quite collaborative in in Australia. So there's there's not a lot of competition most people are quite helpful and so as an association what we're trying to do is 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 all the things that associations always do effectively bring an opportunity for for people to get together whether it's through you know networking events or or other um, cpd type events educational events conferences uh things like that we're trying to bring people together so that um, they will talk about treasury, um, and whether that's over a over a beer or, or lunch or whatever it might be. But we're trying to do that, uh, and so that, that people realise there's a broader network out there. And the way I've described it is, you know, 
in Australia, the treasury teams tend to be quite small. For a large company, you might have 10 to 15 people, um, but most people are going to probably have between five and 10. And so I've described it as a way of basically increasing the size of your team without having to pay for it. And, and I think that is true. And, and I've come to networking late in life. Um, I, I was a woeful networker um, in part because I, I was quite introverted, so I, I, didn't really, I didn't really feel comfortable doing that, but also because I didn't see it as, as something I should necessarily do. Um, and, and so part of that's because I'd come from financial markets and in financial markets, you, you didn't generally have a great network. It was just, you know, where's your price, yours? Um, there wasn't really a lot of conversation uh, to be had. But I think f- for me, there is this real opportunity to, when you come across something, if you, you may not be sure about your thoughts, you might not be sure about where to proceed or what, what tack to take, there is a real opportunity to pick up the phone and talk to somebody and ask them. And I've had, you know, examples, quick examples I can give you at a, a, a company that I was trying to bring in a, a capital management strategy for. And as the board meeting was approaching, the CFO was getting more nervous. And so one of the better companies in Australia, um, I had someone that, that I got on very well with. And, and I just said, look, I'm running into a, uh, a bit of a problem. You know, CFO's getting a bit anxious. And they said, why don't you bring them over to us? We'll have lunch. We'll sit and have a chat. Um, and so, you know, this is one of the better capital managers in, in the Australian um, stock market index. And so we sort of sat down and just had a conversation and he got the reassurance that, you know, the, the type of framework that I was looking to bring in is, is the, the same sort of thing that they do. And, and so it helped him gain comfort in what we were trying to do. I also ended up with insurance at one point in, in my career as well and didn't know anything about insurance as a business. And there was talk of a captive insurance subsidiary, which I didn't know about. And I was actually standing in the line to the drinks for the ACTA conference. And the person in front of me, we just got talking and I said, oh yeah, I've got this captive insurance subsidiary I've got to do. And he said, oh, we've got one. I'll put you in touch with um, with the, the the people that run our our subsidiary, and you can have a chat with them. And so I hadn't even got in the doors of the conference yet, where I'd already got the value that it, it cost to achieve just because I had a contact. So it's little things like that where it's sort of like having a big team without actually having to, to have them on your books. And probably actually yeah. one thing I'll quickly say, sorry, mm-hmm. um, is that for me the where the penny dropped for me was when I realized that the networking was about how you can help other people. It wasn't about getting things for yourself. And when I, when I turned that corner, it became a lot easier for me. I, I don't think I'm particularly good at it now, but I, I'm, I'm always trying to, how can I help other people? Um, how can I put one person in touch with somebody else because I think they can help each other? Um, and then when you do that, it's like you you store up all these credits, and then when you do need to ask somebody something, they're really willing to do it because you've helped them two, three, four times before. So, um, so actor is really good at doing that. 
So you, you brought up conferences, but for women, Kurt, I was going to say that it feels that beers and lunches are quite central to networking opportunities in, uh, in Australia, <laughs> which, which makes sense, right? It makes it a lot easier because the hardest part right, is getting people together when all people can turn up. And you'll find, uh, well, what we found anyway is that women found it much harder to turn up to breakfast for example, because of the school runs and things like that. And so often if you can get people together over, over a lunch, it has the benefit of it's, it's free in people's time. Um, but what it also does is it provides that sort of, it, it's just more relaxed. People just relax more when, when you're you know, over a meal, over drinks. But yeah, I think you could have been uh, referring a little bit to Australians' proclivity for, for having a beer. We, we certainly do have that, and I'm not walking away from that at all. A bit more about the association then. So you guys, I guess, host trainings and do some developmental work for treasurers as well? We do. So what we try to do is make sure that every event has an educational piece to it. So even if we will have quarterly networking drinks that'll be because it runs later at night it'll be sort of five to seven thirty or something like that but what we'll do is we'll start it with an educational piece and so we'll bring speakers that we uh we think are interesting not always in the in the treasury space it, it can be outside of that but what we're looking to do is just open people's minds have the opportunity to listen to people that they ordinarily wouldn't wouldn't listen to and see if that gives them a, an opportunity then to learn something which is you know that's really what it's all about it's it's developing professionally learning and, and with that in mind one of the things that that we we've, we've done fairly recently is to introduce a certificate in corporate treasury and that's been something that's been on the cards for us for a while it's it's quite a large ask actually pulling it all together that we've we've managed to do that and it's pitched more at less experienced professionals in treasury and that's uh, because that's a demographic that we're trying to attract uh, number one um, so we, we're we're hoping to get uh, people from university we're hoping to get people who you know maybe they've started their careers as a broader finance person and then open the door to, to ways of getting into treasury. And the, the other reason really is we're trying to raise the bar on the whole pool of potential treasury employees. And we, we just, we want to get um, one day to the point where employers won't hire somebody in treasury unless they're a member of the association and they're, they're certified uh, as, a, as a professional that that has a certain qualification and a certain skill level. And we've taken a lot of effort for it not just to be an academic workout. I'm very academic myself, so I don't say that in a disparaging way, but rather just saying that uh, we, we find that most people in Treasury have at least one degree. Um, so what we're trying to do is build on that with a lot of practical examples. And so we've got you know, a lot of case studies, videos of treasurers that are going through uh, particular issues and we're trying to keep it very current and, and interesting where people can actually say, well, okay, what, what does a treasurer actually have to 
be confronted by uh, as part of their day and, and how do they go about it. Very cool. And, and what about the ACTA globally? How are you guys uh, working to like, branch out with perhaps other associations in other countries? So we're embarking on that, I guess, um, early days. So what, what we're trying to do, I, I guess, is start the process and, and let people know that our doors are open. We have a relationship with some entities. There's you know, Infins in, in uh, New Zealand. Obviously, they're, you know, they're, they're an, an entity that we deal with quite closely and they often attend our conferences, for example. But you know, we've had board members go to ACT events in, in Scotland uh, and, and, and open up some of the conversations there. I'm doing this podcast uh, with in part to try and get out and um, you know get get across to a to a different audience, and uh, you know I've also done uh, got a relationship started with Treasury Excel in in the Netherlands, and so and, and Robin Page at TMI in the UK. So th- these are all relationships that are in in their very early days, but they're they're all very nice people. The relationships that I'm hoping to um, to continue to explore over time, and if there's any any one of your listeners that that wants to reach out, I'm uh, I'm more than happy to do so. You just uh, you just dropped the big names of Treasury, indeed, Kurtz. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Now that you're part of the Corporate Treasury 101 family, um, I'm sure you'll be able to join a lot of the other past guests as well, and a lot of ways. And future. Kurt, wrapping up, we have a new section to our podcast that we want to start with you. It's a bit of a curveball. We didn't talk about it before. The whole thing is about being more strategic treasure, right? Which is a super interesting topic. I think it's, I love the idea of stop thinking of yourself as a support function, think of yourself as a value add function, right? That's, and pursue that journey. I like that message track overall. In the current world and the way it's developing, technology, advancing so rapidly, specifically AI. How do you think treasurers can better use potentially AI to become more of a strategic treasure? And I'll put you on the spot so we can... Technically, I'm certainly not an expert. Uh, but what I think, the, the way I look at it is, as a, in, if I look at my own role and generally roles of people in teams, you want to be involved in things that are interesting and personally rewarding. So where I see things like where I see technology playing, and whether that's AI or any other sort of digitization sort of process, it's about reducing the amount of time and effort that you spend on high volume, low value add activity, because those things can release you technology can release you from those activities and that gives you more time to then do the low volume high value activity and i can give you a little example um i spoke about the insurance space uh i was given an insurance business to to run um because treasury and insurance can be together sometimes um and it wasn't running very well. Uh, it had about 10 people. There were lots of complaints. There were backed up claims. It was just, it was not good. So the first thing I, I looked at was, can we contract it out? 
can I just contract it out to somebody else and have a service level agreement and not have to worry about it anymore? And turns out I couldn't do that. That was the easiest solution. Um, but the other thing that we then did was a technological solution. And we brought in a, a system, it was a bes bespoke build, under a transformation program, that's how we funded it, to do exactly what I said. Stop people from looking at high volume, low value add stuff and focus on the bigger ticket. So in this case, don't have somebody looking at a hundred, you know, spending lots of time on a hundred dollar claim because it costs more to look at it, right? And so it's work out what's the cost of claim and then triage through digital technology, triage claims into the different categories of risk. And so by doing that, we were able to work our way through all of the backlogs, all of the complaints stopped, and we ended up with a team of four. Now, I didn't have to sack people. It was just, it was natural. It was as people left, we didn't hire to replace them. As contracts expired, we didn't renew them. And so we ended up, and, and so the situation was that business was operating at a loss, and in the end, it was operating at a profit. And that was done through this digital process. I can say that the actual process of the digitalization, I know very little about. But what I was able to do was look at the physical processes in, that was in place, discover that they were chronically inefficient, and then was able to then look at mounting a business case in order to, to get the investment in the technology. And that all goes back to return on invested capital being higher than the funding cost. So it's, it's, it's a common theme. If you're going to run a business, it has to run in, in that way. Kurt, that was an absolute masterpiece. Thank you so much. Maybe to, to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add on the different topics we touched upon, whether it's about the ACTA or um, how can treasurers go from support function to actual business partners? Anything you'd like to, to mention? I think we've covered it pretty comprehensively, um, mm -hmm. actually. But I, I think in closing, uh, I'd say that I think we're incredibly lucky to be working in a really interesting, challenging and rewarding field. Um, and I think that's that's why people who get to be treasurers don't leave very often until they retire. Um, it's because of those things. And that's because I think the success of the company is in our hands. Uh, you, you can have the board and the C-suite coming up with, you know, corporate strategy. But in the end, if, if we can't fund it, it's not going to happen. And, and so there's a, I think that means there's a real opportunity for us to, to have a very rewarding career. And I think we should be grateful to be in, in a position of, of influence and, and trust. In, in terms of ACTA, ACTA's done a lot for me. And, and as I say, I was quite a reluctant networker and turned up and tended to stand in the corner of the room a little bit. Um, I was welcomed into uh, into the fold with open arms, um, and I'm trying now to to do uh, what was done for me to to a lot of other people. It, it's a terrific association. 
It's got some very talented people and I'm very keen to, to reach out to as many people around the world as possible. One of the very good things about COVID is that we're all equipped to communicate in this way now. Um, and it's, it's, it's great that um, I can have clients on the other side of Australia because it really doesn't, you know, we, we can, we've got a digital solution. And I would say the same for, for ACTA. Happy to speak and reach out to anybody. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, if people would like to know more about you, the ACTA, or eventually reach out, or even know more about Marengo Capital, where, where should they go? We have a website for, uh, for ACTA. So it's, if you put in ACTA Treasury, one word, so A-C-T-A Treasury, one word, um, then it will come up and you'll see the Australian Corporate Treasury Association. You can click on there and see, see what we do and, and reach out to us through, through that means. For Marengo Capital, I, I, I run my business, hopefully, how, I've, how I tell other people to run theirs. I don't have a website. Um, it, uh, it costs me more money than what I generate out of it, so I don't do it at this point. Um, but people can message me on, on LinkedIn if they like. And uh, I would, um, yeah, I would like that. Um, hopefully, a lot of people reach out. I will, um, I will get back to you, and and then we can uh, open up communication channels that way. Amazing. We'll put all the links in the description. Kurt, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate the invite, and I've um, I've enjoyed the chat. Thanks very much. <laughs>